I'm going to be reading chapter, Luke chapter 14, 12 through 24. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return, and you will be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they, all alike, began to make excuses. The first to him said, I have bought a field, and I must go out to see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lands of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you command has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. You may be seated. Thank you, Tricia. Well, good morning. I'd like to start with a short testimony about a minor miracle. Well, it doesn't really deserve the title of miracle, but so uh, I was writing the sermon yesterday, as is my normal habit, and uh, couldn't spend as much time as I'd like to have on it because Jim Haynes and I decided to go out for dinner, which was fitting because I'm talking about eating with Jesus, and so Jim and I went and had dinner with Jesus. Um, and I'm working on the sermon beforehand, and we went and ate in downtown Peoria. Not only did I leave my keys in my car, I left my car unlocked with my laptop bag, you know, just there for everybody to take. But nobody did, so I'm taking that as a sign that the Lord really wanted you to, uh, to receive this message this morning. <clears throat> First time in my life I've ever done that. Anyway, um, so just there you go. Well, today I'd like to talk to you about how much Jesus likes to eat with people. Some of you have heard me or others talk about this before, which is good because we're going to keep talking about it for a few weeks here. Many of us inherited an image of Jesus that is sort of a bland, sparkling, clean guy that floats around with a lot of good ideas, but not a whole lot of personality, sort of like a friendly ghost. We would easily call Jesus good, but the words like fun or interesting wouldn't necessarily spring to mind about him or about who he was. And if that's where you're at, I encourage you to just grasp that image firmly and just hurl it out of your mind because that's an imposter Jesus, that's not the real man. 
The real Jesus was about as far from boring as it is possible to be. Your enemies don't call you a drunkard and a glutton, which the religious leaders did, unless you have a reputation for being found at parties. Bland and boring folks generally don't get invited to the parties in the first place. Bland and boring folks usually don't get executed for treason and blasphemy. So whatever Jesus was, he was certainly not bland or boring. And I hope that this idea of Jesus' love for eating with people isn't a brand new idea. He placed a meal at the center of the Christian faith, the bread and the wine that billions of Christians receive every Sunday. Eating together is built into the very DNA of the church. Now, in part, this is because eating is a universal human activity. Everybody does it. Everyone on the planet, no matter how villainous, no matter how righteous, probably has a grandma whose cooking they love. They probably have some favorite dish. All of us can point to a meal or a party as one of the best times in their lives. For you, that's perhaps a holiday meal with family or a reunion with friends. For some of us, maybe our wedding reception. For some of us, perhaps it's a, it's a, a meal that we've shared together as a church family, one of our potlucks or uh, the big 4th of July pic- picnics that we used to do, that sweetheart banquet where they transformed one of the staircases into a waterfall. Who all was there for that? I was alive, but I, you know, I've seen pictures. When, I, when I'm feeling down, I like to imagine the looks on the trustees' faces if I were to suggest doing that again. <laughs> Cheers me right up. I, can't, I cannot believe you did that. But anyway, maybe, maybe for some of you it was that. The point is, Jesus loves eating. We love eating. It's a match literally made in heaven. And this morning we kick off a six-week sermon series called Eating with Jesus. Fairly straightforward. Our hope is that by the beginning of March, when we switch over to the next one, we will have deepened in our love and admiration of the Lord and want to follow him in the practice of eating with people. And today also marks the beginning of a year-long practice that we're going to be inviting the entire Calvary family to participate in, which I'm excited about. Hopefully you will be too. If you're not, don't tell me, but I'll talk more about that at the end. For now, let's look at Luke chapter 14, the story, one of the stories of a time when Jesus was invited over to somebody's house for dinner. And our single-sentence sermon summary this morning is this. Take the risk and have Jesus over for dinner. Take the risk and have Jesus over for dinner. And so in Luke 14, we find that it's a Sabbath day. One Sabbath, Jesus presumably was at the synagogue, perhaps. Something happened, and this prominent Pharisee, this wealthy man, invites him over for dinner. Now, this was enemy territory, and Jesus knew this. The text tells us that many of the guests were watching him closely earlier in Luke 14 to see what he would do. Their very worst suspicions of Jesus are confirmed when immediately he heals a man suffering from abnormal swelling. The Pharisees considered healing a work which is illegal on the Sabbath. And as dinner was served, Jesus noticed that many of the guests went right for the best seats. He encouraged them to live differently to choose the worst seat so that either they'd learn to be content with that or they'd prompt the host himself to come and move them to a better seat. And so our passage begins in verse 12 after Jesus has already broken the law and insulted all of them. They haven't even started eating. It's risky business having Jesus over for dinner. And so Jesus instructs his host that the next time he gives a Sabbath meal, probably the next week, he should invite those in the town who could never pay him back. 
the crippled, the poor, the lame, etc. You will be blessed, Jesus told him. Jesus means that the Pharisee will share in the life of God and all of the implications that that has. Although they cannot repay you, Jesus tells this man, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. I think another way of putting that is Jesus tells this guy, remember what's at stake. There's a bigger story at work in the world than just you looking good in front of other people or you being successful. Probably a sermon all on its own, but we have to leave it there. In verse 15, one of the guests, whom I will call Frank, just for the sake of not having to repeat one of the guests a thousand times, Frank the Pharisee, piped up and challenged Jesus with this. Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. Now those two sentences, what Jesus says and what the Pharisees say, may not immediately seem like it's in conflict, but I think that they are, and I think that we can understand the tension between Jesus and Frank as a tension over who is blessed, who shares in the life of God. Is it the ones who invite the poor in to their meals, or is it the ones who are already have an invitation to the VIP executive lounge in the kingdom of God? Jesus' answer to this man, and I imagine it was infuriating when people would say things to him and he would answer by telling a story, because I'm generally annoyed when people answer things by telling stories. I mean, I do that, but, you know, it's fine when I do it. And I guess, I suppose when Jesus does it. Anyway, Jesus' answer to this man is this parable that we find in verses 16 through 24. The master throws this great banquet, but all the people he originally invited come up with lousy excuses for why they can't come. And they're lousy because it's not that this isn't the first time they've heard, right? They already knew that this was coming, and then they either forgot or just chose to do something else when the day actually came for them to come to this banquet. And so the master gathers in all the poor, all the ones who will never get invited to parties, and they have the banquet anyway. And here's what I think Jesus is doing with this parable. At the beginning of the chapter, we didn't read it, but you can, if you opened your Bibles, you can look at the top of Luke 14 and I already mentioned it, that Jesus heals a man with abnormal swellings. I'm not entirely sure what that means, but he was swollen and it was abnormal. I don't think the swollen man was invited to the Pharisees' party. The dinner is likely happening outside in a courtyard, which means it's visible from the street. And I would imagine, given Jesus' reputation, that there was a growing crowd of folks seeking healing and deliverance from him. So Jesus stops on his way to the party to heal this man, then told the Pharisee to invite not some hypothetical group of poor people, but those actual poor people standing at the gates, the ones that you had to walk through to get in here, the ones that we have to ignore in order to enjoy the food. Jesus is saying that the coming of God's kingdom, the resurrection, is going to be like this banquet. God is the host, is the master, and the original invitees are the Jewish leadership, the people who assume that they're in. Why wouldn't they be? They're the best Bible people around. The poor and sick in the story are the poor Jews and, and non-Jewish people, us. Frank, the Pharisee, claimed that he and the other religious leaders are the blessed ones because they'll get invited to the, the feast of the kingdom. Jesus says no, because those who think they're invited will be replaced by the very people they ignored. If they want to share in the life of God they should invite in the poor and the sick. And this is not the only time Jesus compares the kingdom to a meal. Well, that basically worked out. <clears throat> I, I did a very informal study 
The NIV, the back of your NIV, will, will total the number of Jesus' parables at 40. Different scholars give slightly different, but we'll, for the purposes of this morning, we'll go with 40. Jesus likens the kingdom to food eating or food preparation, farming, fishing, that sort of thing, in 15 of them. While that's less than half of the total, it is the largest slice of stories that he told about the kingdom of God. And really, the reason I show you this is because it was just, it was illuminating to me when I sat down and actually like, you know, sorted them out, that it really does seem like one of, I think we can say the major way that Jesus thinks about the kingdom is as food and as eating together. One commentary puts it this way, Jesus constantly associates God's reign, God's kingdom with parties, feasts, and banquets, that is, with food and drink. The kingdom of God urges Christians to be like people who are forever at a wedding feast. Imagine taking a bite of your grandmother's apple pie or a cut of prime rib or mint chocolate chip ice cream on the first day of summer. That is what the kingdom of God is like. So what does this do for us? How can Jesus' understanding of the kingdom in the big picture help us in our walks, help us in our lives? There are a number of ways that Jesus' delicious understanding of the kingdom can transform us. I'll talk about two. First, I think that this tells us that our God isn't the caricature that he's often painted as. Right? Jesus could have, if it were true, talked about the kingdom all the time as an army. He could have talked about it as a disaster. He could have talked about it as a courtroom. He doesn't. He talks about it as a feast. And I think what that tells us about God is that he is a welcoming God. He is hospitable. He wants his guests to be well-fed and comfortable. When the Lord throws a party, he wants to pack the house. And the reason that Jesus says that the one who invites the poor shares in the life of God is because the Father God himself does that. He opens the doors to the poor and the poor in spirit, to the sick, undying, excuse me, sick, unclean, dying masses that could never pay him back for what he's done through the death and rising again of Jesus Christ. I think secondly, Jesus' understanding of the kingdom can correct some of the lies that we believe about what it means to follow him. Sometimes we sort of live twin lives. One life in which we work and have fun and go places and sleep. And then the other life, which takes place for a few hours on Sunday mornings and perhaps an hour or two on weeknights, where we do our church things. I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind. I don't think it's evil, but I think that it's shallow. I think that he had more for us in mind than, you know, well, they showed up on Sunday morning, good for them, which is good. But I think that he had more in mind for us than that. He says the kingdom is like a meal. Meals are ordinary. They happen all the time. Meals are necessary. If you don't eat, you die. We eat every day, not only once a week on Sunday mornings. Following Jesus is not about getting really good at the religious things we spend 2% of our time doing. It's about learning how to live differently during the other 98% of the time. We take our ordinary habits, activities, and duties, and we change them a little. We invite Jesus in to what it is that we'd be doing anyway. And sometimes, usually, Jesus points out a few other people that we could bring along in with whatever we happen to be doing. It's a risky thing, inviting Jesus in and having him for dinner, having him over for dinner. 
And with all that in mind, we'd like to invite the Calvary family into the practice of eating with Jesus, specifically eating with others with Jesus, having people over for dinner. Now, some of you, that might be like a letdown and be like, that's it? That's what you were going to tell us? It's like, well, yeah, I mean, that is it. Jesus says that the kingdom is like a meal, and I think his invitation there is that any of our meals can become like the kingdom. There's a power there. There's a sacredness there. Every one of our households already eats dinner. It's something you already do. I mean, maybe some days you skip it for whatever reason, but it's something that you already do. You already do, and you already know how to do. It's not something that's brand new. This is a familiar thing that we're going to learn how to do in a slightly new way. Now, some of us are used to and enjoying having folks over. For others, this might be horrifying, that prospect. I think we're all invited to include Jesus in our eating and allow him to point out the folks that we can have over and to bless this over the coming year. Hopefully, most of you are at least vaguely aware that Pastor Clayton and I and the deacons were in a a season of discernment last fall, seeking from the Lord a renewed vision for this church. And that renewed vision statement, and Clayton uh, said it earlier in the service, is that Calvary is a family of God's people being formed by the gospel to love and serve our community. Now, I realize that some of you would rather go get kicked by a horse than hear about all the church vision stuff again, and that's fine. I hear that. I hear that. But stick with me for a minute. Calvary is a church family that can be defined by two things, eating and doing. We eat together, we do or we serve together. When you think about it, nearly all our ministries involve those two things, youth group, men's prayer, breakfast, women in mission, the mission meals, the community barbecue, the relief sale, Christmas caroling, the Sunday school breakfast potlucks were some of the best things we've ever done. When Darren and Bruce came to us with the idea for the Threads Hope and Love breakfast, which we did back in December, it made immediate sense. Why wouldn't we do that? It combines the two things that we're really good at, eating and doing. And that's what got us thinking. As a whole church family, we eat and we do. And I think in many ways, we're there. Like, we're, we are living in that, in that vision and that anointing that God has given us, I think, in a unique way in, in the Washington area. But how could our individual households grab a hold of that vision? How could we take a little bit of what we do on Sunday morning or what we do on special occasions like the relief sale, etc., and actually form a little bit of our weekly, ordinary lives in that same way? What brings together food and service? Having somebody over for dinner. I think if most of us are able to have some people over at least once a month for most of 19, excuse me, most of 2019, I think that would be awesome. I think that we'd see effects from that in our church family, and I think perhaps even wider effects. And I want to be clear, and we're going to continue to talk about this for the next five weeks, So buckle up. But I do want to be clear here at the beginning what I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about a sort of bait and switch where you lure a buddy from work to your house with the offer of food, and then once he's in the door, you get weirdly religious on him. That's not what I'm talking about. 
Obviously, if it comes up, but that's not, you know, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about putting on a program or having to entertain people uh, when they're there. We're not talking about giving up your whole evening. You don't spend the whole evening eating dinner. Simply eating the dinner you would have eaten just with a few other people in the mix. And I know that there's going to be some issues or questions or things like that, and that's perfectly fine. Like I said, we're talking about it for, for a while. I know that for some of us, you would think, yeah, but what if, what if, you know, sometimes our dinner is only like macaroni and cheese? And it's like, well, you know, other people like macaroni and cheese. That's all right. Well, yeah, but, well, you know, I have to get my house clean. It's like, yeah, you do, but also in some ways you don't, you know. Um, I think that we'll, we'll talk about some of those things over the coming weeks. Um, some of us live alone, either because we've, we have to, because of circumstances, just we choose to, then you don't really have a household to eat with. I mean, I feel that. Um, I think maybe the encouragement there would be to try and prayerfully eat one of your dinners, don't have the TV on, don't read anything, and just kind of pray through all this with the Lord, or grab a buddy and go out to eat together somewhere else. But for the next six weeks, so in case, you know, because I know some of us are like, ah, oh, this isn't, stop talking. But for the next six weeks, the encouragement is pretty simple. It's just to establish the practice of eating dinner together as a household, at least one night a week. I would assume, and this isn't a judgment, but I would think that most of us probably already do this. If you do, great, just keep doing it. You're, you're, you're good until early March, just keep doing that. If you don't, now is the time to eat dinner differently, at least one night a week. Matthew and I, he's not here, probably mortified for me to talk about this, but you know, we're not uh, married to each other or related to each other, but we still eat dinner together at least once a week. <clears throat> Eventually, we'll invite you to have people over who, you've, who you're comfortable with. That could be family, friends, whoever. A little while after that, we're going to start to have Calvary people over. And actually, it turns out, I guess, that Calvary actually did something like this like 30 years ago. Uh, I mean, I was dead. Or I was dead. I wasn't. <laughs> I was pre-dead. Anyway, we didn't know is the point of that. We didn't know that the church had already done this until we started talking about it. But for Clayton and I, that was just confirmation. It's like, well, that makes perfect sense because what do we do at Calvary Community Church? We eat and we do. Goodness. <laughs> a month or so before the holidays, obviously this is months out, but a month or so before the holidays, we're going to invite you to have acquaintances over. Not strangers, folks you have some connection with, but perhaps don't really know very well, certainly have never had over before. And we'll talk about those things as we get closer and, and talk through different details, but that, I did want to give you the overview of that's kind of where we're headed. But like I said, for the next six weeks, the goal is to establish the practice that you have something to invite people into. Now, let's get back to Jesus and Frank at the Pharisees' dinner so I can wrap up this uh, odd sermon. Frank says that the spiritual VIPs are the blessed ones. Why wouldn't they be? They're the religious leaders. But Jesus' parable shows us that the invitation means nothing if you don't actually show up. Each of the original guests have some excuse to skip the party. They have a lot of life going on. They're too busy, it seems, to join the feast. The master's response is immediate. 
He intends to have a banquet, whether those he originally invited are there or not. And the original invitees were not excluded. They simply refused to come and so could not participate in the feast. Jesus wants his audience to see that by ignoring the poor ones, by assuming that they're invited, the leaders have, in fact, rejected the invitation. I think the math is simple on this. If you want to share in the Father's kingdom, then you have to act like the Father acts, and the Father invites whoever is available to the party. The other thing about parties we shouldn't forget is this. It's possible to miss them. I was invited to a wedding once. I wasn't performing it, thank God, because I didn't make it. But I was invited to a wedding once somewhere in northern Illinois. And my friend and I never made it to the wedding because we got hopelessly lost. We still had a great time. We found a drive through grocery store and a dentist office ran by someone named Dr. Teef and discovered the town of Wyanette, which is lovely if you ever are lost and happen to go through it. But we missed the wedding, and in fact, I was thinking about this this morning, I've actually missed just about the same number of weddings as I've gone to that I've been invited to. That's a bad habit. I don't know what that means. It probably means something. Anyway, so I know all about missing the party. The date comes and goes. If you weren't there, you missed it. There's nothing you can do. Later in chapter 14, Jesus warns the crowds to count the cost of following him, and he likens the kingdom to an approaching army. I think his point is these things are happening with or without you. The army is coming, whether you're ready or not. The feast is happening, so drop what you're doing and answer the invitation. And the invitation in Jesus' or the invitees in Jesus' parable probably really did need to go test out those new oxen. I mean, that sounds reasonable. But then they missed the banquet. And as we establish the practice of eating with Jesus over the coming weeks, I urge you to not try and make excuses to the Lord and reject this invitation. We're all busy. We've all got a lot going on. There's all sorts of reasons why this isn't going to work. But the parable of the great banquet is a word of caution for all of us who consider ourselves too busy or exempt from paying attention to what the Lord is doing. Now, obviously, well, this is obvious to you. I have to remind myself of it occasionally. I'm not the Lord. I don't presume to give anybody commands. This practice of eating dinner with Jesus is not the only way that he'll be at work in this congregation this year, and we know that. But we are faithfully expecting him to show up to the dinners that he's invited to. In these next few weeks, take the risk and have Jesus over for dinner. Pray as a household that, you, that he would tell you which people you should have over later on in the year. You want to be like Jesus? I assume you do because you're here at church. He did this sort of thing all the time. You want to grow in faith? Open your home to someone who's never been there before. You feel overwhelmed at the expectations that family, life, and church are all throwing at you? I hear that. We don't want anybody to be burdened. And I encourage you to take a breath. Remember that you'll eat dinner anyway. This isn't something in addition to your schedule. You will eat dinner anyway. All this requires is an invitation. I don't want any of us to miss out on what's going to happen this year. Jesus loves a good time. He gets that from his dad. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, always inviting, always accepting the invitation. God created the universe not because he needed to or because he was bored, but so that more living beings could share in his life. 
A life that, according to Jesus, is something like the best party you've ever been to. Church, let us obediently answer his invitation, then turn and invite others along. Jesus says that where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. He he didn't explicitly mention food in that verse, but we know he doesn't just mean that verse for a prayer meeting. Take the risk. Have Jesus over for dinner this week, and then keep your eyes open, because he might show up. He might do something that you don't expect. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this good day and the opportunity to gather together as your people, and we pray, Lord, for each of us that we would leave this morning wanting to know you more, wanting to spend more time with you. Father, I do pray for those of us who may struggle against a picture of Jesus as sort of a bland, tissue paper man. Father, I pray that that would be just be blown away by the reality of who Jesus really is and what he was actually like. Lord, I pray for those of us who need it, that we would have the uh, confidence that Jesus is a man that we can follow and a man that we can trust. And Lord, I pray as we begin this practice this year of eating with Jesus with people, Lord, I pray that we would see amazing blessings and gifts and stories come out of that. We're trusting that we will be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.